0: Hello and welcome. This is Mish Daniel from Revolve Commercial. I want to thank you for joining me on this podcast. We are going to be sharing with you some fantastic pieces of information. So whether you're driving or out walking your dog or just want to learn, I really appreciate you being here. And I commend you for taking the time out of your busy day to invest in your knowledge of the commercial property industry. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. And just for those newcomers, I help investors generate cash flow on autopilot by acquiring high-yielding commercial properties to help you grow your successful portfolio. So let's get into it straight away.
1: Mish Daniel joins me again on the show today to go through what I like to call a commercial property investing quick start guide. It's basically a commercial 101 everything that you need to know before you dive into commercial property. And we go into depth explaining your metrics, how to do it, rates per square meter, cap rate. A lot of things are covered in this podcast. It was actually so big, we had to split it up into two parts. So this is a really good episode to go over the basics. And also, if you're learning, you need to know this information. So today I want to go back to basics and revisit some fundamentals of investing in commercial property, basically like a commercial 101. Sound good?
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Let's do it.
1: Yeah. Excellent. So first things first, for the listeners that don't know who you are, can you give us a little bit about your property background?
0: Okay. So I basically started buying uh, properties at the age of 22, started out uh, in residential and my entire property career has been all about uplift properties. So I started doing uplift properties. My father was a renovator, and he taught me at a young age to look beyond the walls. I'd say in the last 35 years, I've bought over 43 properties, and I'd say out of those, probably about 35 of them have been uplift properties. When I talk about uplift properties, I'm talking about taking ordinary property. I'll give you an example. The first one that I bought, I paid 350,000 for it. I knocked out a couple of walls. Added value to the property, closed in a nice little sunroom, and we sold that property about three or four years later for 1.3 million. Second property we did was 660 thousand. Turned the house around a little bit, and that was 660 in and about um, 1.6 going out when we moved that property. And I've just continued to do that until about 18 years ago. I've always been in business. And I started doing that in commercial property. So same sort of thing, same principle, just with different numbers and doing different types of of uplifts.
1: And is that when you became a buyer's agent?
0: So I became a buyer's agent about four or five years ago when I realized that I'd been doing this in commercial for quite a long time. And a lot of people started asking me, what am I doing and how do I do it? And the more I started explaining about commercial property, People were asking me, they were saying to me, well, can you show me how to do that? So I thought, well, yeah, absolutely. Let's start something over here. And it was at my career where I needed to find something to get into. I really am passionate about uplift properties. I'm passionate about coaching, about mentoring, showing people. I love that glint in their eye when you run the numbers by and they can see what the potential is. So I really love working with people hands-on, one-on-one we do pretty much a a boutique style of mentoring. So I don't mentor en masse, I mentor one-on-one.
1: Yeah, beautiful, sounds great. All right, Mish, well, let's get into it. Why choose commercial property as a wealth strategy?
0: Well, just going back to my story, I realized um, once I started doing commercial property that you've actually got a hell of a lot more leverage in commercial to what you have in residential and what i mean by that is because in commercial you have a contract that is a legal binding contract with your your tenant you're dealing with a tenant who's in business who's generally very conscientious about the place they're presenting to the outside world so you know they might live in in a bit of a ramshack of a house or they can be entirely at home in their business premises they have to be clean And the types of leases that we do are generally a net lease, which means that the tenants pay for all the outgoings. They pay for, sometimes they'll pay for land tax as well. They would pay for maintenance in some instances. They pay for the insurances. They pay for the rates and everything else involved in the properties. Whereas in residential, you renting out everything, you end up paying for all of that, and all you're getting is a gross lease. If you start working out the difference between your gross leases and your net lease, you're actually coming home with a hell of a lot less on a residential property. Unless you own that property outright or you bought it 10 years ago or something, your cap rate on it might be 5 4 or 5%, maybe a little bit higher. I know some people that have owned properties for a lot longer and their cap rate is probably about 7 or 8%, but the difference is that it is a gross lease versus a net lease. So that's probably primarily the big difference. And the big difference is in residential, you're getting a rental income of, let's say, $200 a week in commercial If you're getting exactly the same rental of $200 a week at the end of the month, once you're paying all your outgoings, your net cash flow that you're putting in your pocket is going to be either breaking even, negative, as opposed to in commercial, the cash that you're putting into your pocket is going to be positive because you're not having to pay the extra expenses. Does that make sense?
1: Perfect sense. So what are the three ways that commercial property can be valued?
0: the best way to value a commercial property obviously is the area having a look at at what's happening in the area the most important is we value the properties by the value of the lease so the rental income the length of the lease and generally what's happening in the area as well for instance we'd be looking at properties that are in gentrifying areas so Exactly the same as residential. You want it to be following commercial trends or you want it to be following residential trends. Commercial would be about a year or two years behind the residential trends. And what I mean by that is wherever you have a mass population coming in, in residential, they are going to require commercial services. Commercial services would probably come in after the residential has come in. And by virtue of the fact that you've got a growing population, that's going to value up your property. So the first thing that you want to do is your rates of cost per square meter. And your second thing that you want to do is your rates of rental per square meter. So when you're buying a commercial property, the first thing that you want to do is make sure that your rental rates are in line with average rental rates in the area. Okay, A lot of people make mistakes where they see a property that has got a fantastic high yield and it literally takes us three minutes to have a look at their property and I can see mm, that the rental is inflated, it's coming up for a rental review and doom. when that comes up for a rental review, if your average rentals in the area are a lot lower than what you are receiving, well, guess what? You're either going to lose your tenant or you're going to lose a lot of money, which means that the value of your property is going to go down due to the fact that your rental has gone down. So the most important factor is that your rental matches the value of the average rental and that it matches the actual value of that property itself.
1: Yeah, I love that you mentioned that because this is one of the difficult things that people find it quite hard to understand is is the actual average rent for that type of property per area. And also, one of the things that I like to track is the amount of jobs that are going into that market. And if you can see a really good spike in jobs, like a really good trend, then you Mm -hmm. know that people are going to come and then you check on the residential portals. You see it's quite a hot market. So you Mm -hmm. know that in time, that market is going to have a huge population increase. Not a huge, but like a population increase. And then that could be a good commercial area.
0: Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. And I know you like to track your numbers what we often do is we have a look on at where government is spending money. Yep. So where are the government infrastructures going in? Because wherever they're spending money, they've already done their homework, probably two or three years ahead of us. And we know that if they're doing land release in certain areas, well, those areas are going to be coming onto the market. In that time frame so keeping that in mind we're always watching out to see what's happening we work a lot with quite a lot of developers and one part of our business that i'm involved in does land aggregation as well for development sites so it's always good to see where they're doing that land aggregation because that's basically where the development's starting to grow and to flow and that gives us heads up and obviously if they're building residential, you're going to have that component of growth. And the other thing that we like to have a look at, Andrew, and I think you would be all over this, is the type of clientele that the market is being steered towards. So in other words, is it an AB income or is it a DC sort of income? And value the properties according to whatever the area is, if that makes sense.
1: So you're talking about your average income compared to your high income earners?
0: Yes, absolutely. So that's going to have a knock on effect on your commercial property.
1: Yeah, that's one of the things I track as well. Um, jobs over a hundred thousand to upwards of two hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's definitely a statistic that I like to have a look at.
0: Okay. So with those statistics, uh, Andrew, how do you see them? as the knock-on effect in commercial? Do you see that going more towards office or are you just doing it generally?
1: I'm doing it generally over a period of time. So I'm more in the collecting data stage for um, my platform, CP Data. But, you know, I definitely think that it's something that is nice to see. All the data that I collect, one piece of data is not good enough to make a judgment. You need a whole gambit of data to make a good judgment of an area.
0: Absolutely, I totally agree with you. I was listening to one of your podcasts earlier where you were sharing a couple of platforms, and uh, one or two of them we do use, and some of the, and we use a couple more platforms as well. And what I find is it's pretty much area specific as well. So in the various different areas, we might use different platforms to gauge that data or to draw that data down and make decisions on the certain areas. Another thing that we do as a little tip for your listeners is I track what I call gray areas. So, and this might be interesting for you from a data point of view, what I call the gray areas are areas that have been traditionally or over the last 10 to 20 years, areas that have kind of fallen by the wayside and areas that are in the, in the passage of potential growth or just on the outside of those gentrifying areas of potential growth. And what we're picking up is that those areas have been overlooked over the last couple of years, but because there's tremendous growth going into, and I'm talking residential growth, going into certain areas that there's a knock-on effect, an overrun spill-off, that's going into the gray areas. And by virtue of the fact that it's going into the gray areas, those areas are experiencing natural growth.
1: Yeah, they have an uplift because they're next near the as area. as an
0: overrun of your... Yeah.
1: How do you, yeah. how do you actually yeah. sit that? Are you, is it just something boots on the ground that you, you feel and know?
0: Pretty much. It's a matter of looking, seeing, and observing And interesting that you asked that question because that's kind of what I've been doing for the last 20, 30 years. I'll tell you a little story. I'll give you an example. Many years ago, there was an area that was really, really up and coming. I'm not going to mention the area. What happened is it was close to the beachfront to the sea. So it was kind of like in the 70s and 80s, it was the place to be and the place to be seen. And as the years progressed, the whole dynamic in the area changed. Long story short, it turned into, it was whores and drugs. (laughs) (laughs) It turned into a real slumlord of an area and a movie company came in and they were scouting around for an area and they found this building that was right on the beachfront, right across the road from the beach. And it was a perfect setting for a movie that they wanted to shoot. So they made an arrangement with the owner. Now the owner couldn't get rid of the tenants because the tenants were drug
1: lords.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So they had a massive problem. So the owner said to the the movie company, yeah, with pleasure, go ahead. If you can get rid of the tenants, you can use that building for as long as you like, free of charge. (laughs) (laughs) And that's exactly what they did. As a result of that, the movie company took over about three or four of those buildings in that street the whole street just took off like crazy. And as a result of that, we went, I saw that happening. I remember driving past at the time and I said, wow, that's amazing. We went and we bought about three or four buildings just behind the main street. And I think we made about 100% profit in a period of about two or three years. (laughs) 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 That was the growth that happened as a result of one event happening in a grey area.
1: So with the valuing uh, valuing a commercial property, do you ever use replacement cost of the building and the land value as well?
0: We will always look at that. And nine times out of 10, the value of the building that you're buying is I'd say probably about 40 to 50% higher than the building and the land. Now, I'm, I'm just throwing figures around there because depending on the type of the building, but the land value and the actual building cost would be substantially lower than the actual value of the building that you're buying. And the reason for that is the strength of your lease. So again, depending on whether it's an A-grade building and depending on the tenant, the length of the lease and the location of the actual building itself would determine the value of building and land and land value.
1: Okay. So that probably brings me into my next question. How do you value vacant commercial property?
0: Beautiful question. You know why I say beautiful question is because I love vacant properties. (laughs) (laughs) So the best way that we would value a vacant property is, first thing first, cost per square meter. So we would have a look in the area of the cost per square meter of, number one, you'd look at vacant properties, okay? Secondly, you would look at tenanted properties and what the going rate is of tenanted properties cost per square meter, and whether the rentals are market relative. So we'd look at a vacant property, we'd see what sort of, what type of rental we could put in there, and the, the rate of the rental that we could achieve. Once we've got all of those numbers and those figures, we would know whether the vacant property is at market rate, whether it's overpriced, or underpriced.
1: Yeah. And then you can obviously add into your valuation, the cost of letting it up. And then you obviously would have a figure that, like in your mind of how long it will take. And then mm. you also can dial it back. So you're getting a very, very good deal on a vacant property. So as soon as you get it tenanted, you've got that uplift.
0: Yeah. So we pretty much, when we're looking at a vacant property, we always work backwards. So we'd look at at the value of the tenant coming in and the value of the lease coming in. And we would value the property tenanted and, and leased up. Then what we would look at is holding costs. So in other words, how long is it going to take to get a tenant to get in there? What are the fees that we're going to charge or pay? So whether it's advertising fees, whether it's agent fees, whether we can be working in collaboration with other agents, open listing or single. We would look at fit out So we'd factor that into our feasibility. We would factor in free rental so incentives as well and with all of that in mind how long would our lease be and at what value what cost re- um, would we charge the the tenant and is it market relative so if you look at all of those figures in reverse that could get you down to a figure and are you buying that property at the correct price and is there a chunk deal or an uplift in purchasing that property at as a vacant
1: property? Yeah, I definitely think it's a really interesting strategy. It's just hard to get bank finance on vacant property. I think it's a nice strategy if you have a large amount of money and you can purchase Mm. it with cash and then you can wait and there's no obviously mortgage repayments or anything like that. And you have the reserves to wait to get it tenanted. There's uplift, get it revalued, recycle your cash out of it, buy another one. Like It's a really, really good strategy when you're a bit further along in your investing journey.
0: Andrew, you know, sometimes if you've got a good relationship with your financiers, your banks or your brokers, and also your valuers, valuers play a really, really big part in it as well. So I tend to turn things on their heads a little bit when I'm doing a deal like this, where I roll up my sleeves and I really get involved with interviewing the valuers. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I interview the financiers, the bank that I'm going to go with or I work very closely with the broker who would do exactly the same thing. So we would call the numbers that we're looking for, and then we would look for the right person who's prepared to play with us in that space. The valuers work all over the place, and often they really appreciate the assistance. So I jump in, I meet them on site, I show them what's happening around in the area, I would give them facts and figures, statistics of rentals, going rates, cost per square meterage, possible rentals, all that kind of information. They really, really appreciate it. It just makes the job a little bit easier for them. And generally what we do is I would have that conversation with them, not that they would tell me in advance what they're going to value the building at, but we have a good idea And from the conversation, we can see whether we're pretty much in the ballpark or out, whether they're going to come into the value that that we kind of have in mind. They would never tell you. They're not allowed to tell you straight up. But you get a good gauge of whether you're on track or not. And then based on that, you might get a 50% loan. That's what we really shoot for. What I also do on um, my vacant properties is I start working with agents straight away and have a look at what possibilities, have a look at what sort of tenants are sniffing around. I'd find out from council, what are they doing in terms of precincts? Do they want certain types of tenants in that area? What type of tenants do they want in that area? And we would often ask them for assistance and direction. Yeah. What I really
1: like about about that is, you're being really proactive finding, basically initiating the, the finding process about like getting the tenant. I really love that.
0: Mm, we involve as many parties as possible. We really want to get everybody on the ground on whatever's happening, and we make them very aware of what we're doing. So from council right through to Joe blogs on the street, if I'm buying a property in an area where there are a couple of other businesses and tenants... I would often go and visit the other tenants or go and visit some of the other businesses. I'll just pop in there and have a chat with them, say, hey, how's business? How busy do you guys get? I'd ask them, what are your busiest times? How's parking? Your neighbours are very busy and they've also got a lot of cars coming in and out. How does that work for you? There are a lot of sort of behind the scenes that we do in due diligence that is really, really important that people don't think about that has a huge impact on a property when you're buying it tenanted or vacant for that matter.
1: Yes. Instead of being able to interview the tenant, you're actually interviewing the residents near the property to get a gauge of how the property like works.
0: Yeah. And they would often tell you that um that's a oh we've been here for the last 20 years and we've never had floods, for instance, but in the twenty fifteen floods we were flooded right up to the door. And you've got to ask yourself why? If you have a look on the flood zones, is it marked as, off as floods? No, it's not. Why? Because there's a creek down the road and maybe for whatever reason, there was something different in the, in the weather conditions, in the cloud burst, whatever it was, that affected the property. So going forward, we knew looking at, and this actually happened to us once, we were looking at a, a property and we noticed watermarks on the floor. I had a look at the roof. There wasn't a problem with the roof. Spoke to the other tenants and they said, no, no problem. It just bugged me that um, these watermarks were on. And you could see they were old watermarks. It was a vacant property. So I went and I had a chat with the neighbors. And the one neighbor said, nope, they didn't have any problems. We ended up phoning the tenant that was in there previously. And we found out that the reason they moved out is because they had a flood that affected their building, but it didn't affect the neighbor's building. And there was a blockage in the creek that forced the water to come right up to their door. Wow. The natural thing to do was to phone council straight away to find out whether they had cleared the creek, how often had it happened, would it happen again, is it in flood zone, has it been reallocated, re-demarcated to flood zone. So they give you all of that information. It's a lot of work, it's a lot of conversation, it's a lot of of background, but it's well
1: yeah, I had the same situation when I was looking at a property in Newcastle a little while ago where the, the property flooded once. It was very, very low risk flood zone, flood area. The only reason that it flooded is because the stormwater drain was extremely old and it wasn't uh, of good quality to take on large amounts of water. So all they did was just upgrade the stormwater drain to a better filtering drain and then they never had a problem since.
0: Yeah, and sometimes it's as simple as that. And often council wouldn't know about it unless you actually approach them and tell them. Yeah, that's right. And if you're purchasing a property, and this is where a lot of people overlook a property, they'll see it, they might see the watermarks, that somebody might tell them that there was a flood or creek flood or whatever, and that puts them off the property. Whereas I love it. <laughs> when I see that, I get excited because I think, oh, yay, here's an opportunity What are other people overlooking that we could actually turn into? I say, throw me lemons and I'll make a beautiful sweet lemon meringue pie. (laughs) So (laughs) those are the opportunities that we see. And I mentioned earlier that my father was a builder. He always used to say to me, look beyond the walls, you know, because the opportunities are always beyond what other people are not looking at. And this is a perfect example Yeah.
1: And as the old saying goes, the more problems you can solve, the more money you can make.
0: There we go. Absolutely. (laughs) I had a little uh, payoff line. I always used to say, I love ugly. Bring me ugly. (laughs) Bring me ugly all day, every day. I love ugly because I will turn it into cash flow.
1: Yeah, that's right. So Mish, with vacant property, why do you have to pay GST with vacant property and not tenanted property?
0: Okay, so that's leveraging on business. So vacant property, or let's start with a tenanted property. A tenant property is a going concern, which means that they're paying their GST, whereas a vacant property, you have no going concern in it. There's no GST component. So you're buying it as a commercial entity where you would pay an acquisition fee. You'd pay GST on the acquisition fee.
1: So there's another term that we I don't think we've talked about too much yet, but it's basically how you value a commercial property using a capitalization rate, cap rate for short. Can you explain what a cap rate is?
0: So Andrew, your cap rate would be your average rental yield in that area. So in other words, you work out your cap rate from the value of your rental income versus the cost of the property or the value of the property. So I'm going to to call it cost of the property that you're purchasing. So your rental income would be divided by the cost of the property that you're purchasing that would give you your cap rate or your yield. So what you want to make sure about is that you are purchasing a property at the correct cap rate for that area. And a perfect example of that is what's happening at the moment where you've got cap rates that were traditionally, let's say, 8% in regional areas. And as a result of COVID 19, as a result of the low bank rates that you can get, lending rates that you can get at the moment, there's a big lack of stock. So, the minute there's a lack of stock, obviously there's high demand. Your cap rates are going to be compressed. So, they're going to come down, which means that the value of your property is going to go up. So, the lower your cap rates, the higher your property, the higher the prices that you're going to be paying on those properties. Very important though, if you are buying a property at 5%, let's say, in an area where the cap rate is 7%, you're overpaying for the property. So you've got to be asking yourself why and how is that going to affect me down the line? Is the property worth it and how long is it going to take me to catch up?
1: And how do you explain how the risk that capitalization rate displays?
0: If you're buying a property, let's say at 5% in an area where the all cap rate is 7%, you're overpaying by, let's say, 200000 If you're wanting to sell that property in, let's say, five years, you're going to be making a loss because an educated investor is going to come along, have a look at the property. They're going to run their numbers, do the averages, and be offering you an offer at the average cap rate in the area. Did that answer
1: the question? And what I was also getting at, Mish, was a cap rate usually reflects the amount of perceived risk in a market. So a lower cap rate, say in a capital city, a cap rate these days might be about 5% for Mm. a a decent industrial investment with a decent lease. But if you go out to a regional area, you might be somewhere in the 7% because the perceived risk is it's a lot higher. Yeah. Areas. Yeah. So a yeah. cap rate, a higher cap rate does usually tell the person or tell the market that this is a riskier area. And so I have to have more income to go into this area. Is that correct? <laughs> Boy, how you would explain that?
0: Absolutely. You're spot on there. But I'm having a giggle about it, Andrew, because at the moment, the cap rates are kind of nowhere. <laughs> <laughs> The market has been thrown so on its head at the moment that is there really a standard cap rate? Well, a buyer A is prepared to buy that property at at buyer B, wouldn't touch it below 7%. So (laughs) it's just made it very difficult. But yes, absolutely. Traditionally, and when the market does settle down, we will go back to referring to the cap rate versus risk and reward, basically. Mm As a result of what's happening at the moment, all the markets are going to change because of the population growth, which means that those areas that have been traditionally maybe 7% or 8% are now going to be 6% areas. And I think for the next couple of years, the question that everybody's asking is, how long would those areas be on average, let's say, a lower cap rate? Well, I think the answer is fairly simple and that would be dependent on your population. And this is where it comes back to your numbers and your your statistics, Andrew. Yep. That um, you'd set a cap rate, or we would basically have a look at the cap rate, and we'd say, well, based on the population, the cap rate should be 6% or 7%, whatever it is. In your more regional areas, we'd look at the population. We'd also look at the population growth. We'd have a look at the vacancies. We'd have a look at... The employment, and you so rightly said, the jobs, how many jobs are available, what class of jobs are they, and that would all have an impact on that cap rate at the moment and also into the future.
1: Yeah, that's right. In, um, In CP data, we're developing it right now, where we're going to have a cap rate range for each location and it's gonna be really really helpful to understand where you are sitting mm. in that range when you're looking at, at an investment. We also have a rate per square meter range high and low. So when you're looking at an investment, you'll be able to see where your property sits in that range and whether or not you have room to bump it up to a higher rate per square meter. So it, it's gonna be I get a bit I, I'm geeking out of, over it. It's um it's gonna be amazing. <laughs>
0: I think you are <laughs> geeking out over it. <laughs> You're going to be making it super simple, yeah, That's the, which is fantastic. Fair. Yeah. Just uh, as a matter of interest, I was chatting to John Lindemann. Now, I don't know if you know who John Lindemann is. John has traditionally worked largely in the residential space with regards trends and booms and busts and foretelling those sort of cycles and we were talking about areas and what drives it. So I say John works largely in residential and I'm particularly interested in that because I know that commercial commercial is basically a year to two years behind the residential. So John's in fact going to be on one of our webinars that we're hosting on the 7th of September, but I'll, I'll tell you more about that later. But the same sort of thing where he works on, on the numbers and very much on population so population grows and drives business so where you have feet you have interest okay and that's the bottom line it works the same for residential you have demand the more feet you have the more demand you have and the knock-on effect is the same for uh, commercial
1: yeah that's right i I do know john linderman his name does ring a bell and that'll be really good that webinar i might check that one out So one of the things that I find comes up a lot is like you see on forums and stuff like that, people will ask you, what's the cap rate for industrial right now? They just lump it in like it's one blanket cap rate for the whole of Australia. And people don't understand that each separate market and sub market could have a different cap rate depending on the supply and demand in the area and the perceived risk in the area. Is that how you kind of also explain that mish do you find that people lump everything together
0: yes and no i mean i think it's very dependent on the type of investor that you're speaking to we would merit the property and the area on its values so where it is again population so yes sometimes they would look at that and you know at the moment People are saying, oh, well, industrial cap rate is probably around about 5 or 6%. Well, not really, not true, because it's very dependent on where you are purchasing that property. If you're out in, in, in whoop-whoop, are you going to be paying 5 or 6% for an industrial property? Well, if you are, <laughs> you've got rocks in your head. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, if you're buying a property in regional areas... I think they need to be valued to what is happening in those regional areas versus if you're buying a property close to metro areas, your values and your cap rates are going to be very, very different.
1: Yeah, that's right. And the how I explained it on this forum that I um, that I replied to is if you had exactly the same property with exactly the same tenant and exactly the same lease, if you purchase industrial investment in, say, Brisbane CBD, you might be paying 5 to 6% for that. But if you took that exact same property, same tenant to Townsville, you're going to be paying, you know, 7 to 8% for that. That's just how the difference in locations work and the supply and demand in that area.
0: Absolutely. I mean, you're looking at a population of about 1.5 million. I think Brisbane's probably about 1.3 million versus a population of 196,000 people in Townsville. Well, what are the chances when your property goes vacant in Brisbane How much faster are you going to be able to tenant that property in a population of 1.3 million people versus how fast can you tenant that property in Townsville with a population that is substantially smaller? So that is where your risk and reward is. It's your holding cost. So can you sustain the property for, let's say, 12 months being vacant in a relatively more regional area where you are getting a higher cap rate on it versus three months in a metropole area where you're getting a slightly low cap rate. So it's a matter of running the numbers.
1: This is another one of the metrics that I'm trying to be able to make very, very clear for people because I am of the belief that you don't have to have a huge population. It's not about the population all the time. It's about the amount of supply for that population So I'm okay going into a a much more regional area if I know and I can prove and I have supporting evidence that the supply of that property is extremely low. It has been for a long time and there is some kind of geographical boundaries like zonings or something not allowing any more of that property to be developed. So there's going to be high demand for that type of use of property because there's been no more supply. So I like to look and think of it of the supply and demand. And if the supply and demand ratio makes sense, then that makes me feel a lot more comfortable to go into a regional area.
0: Very much so. I think the other thing that I would say, if you're looking at those type of properties and you're looking at that supply and demand, have a look at Greenlands. So in other words, what properties are going to be released as development properties as well? So We call it Greenlands that are being converted. And you'll find that in some of those regional areas, it's not out there yet, but they are earmarking a certain area that is going to be densely populated or they are wanting to drive traffic into a different area that would have an impact on uh, supply and demand as well.
1: And that, um, that that goes into the supply bucket. So you, you definitely have that in your ratio. And I'm trying to mm-hmm. figure out a very, very calculated, easy way to represent this for users of CP data to understand the supply-demand ratio. Because I figured it out for self-storage because mm-hmm. that's a lot easier for me to figure out how many self-storage facilities are in a market whereas Mm. it's different for the complete commercial base. So
0: Look, I think you'd have to work per capita over there, work it out, you know, because if your supply and demand in a traditionally, let's say, a 20-year-old area or older, your demand should effectively increase depending on, again, your population, how your population is increasing. But there's so many factors involved, so I think it's a very difficult, I want to call it the magic bullet (laughs) the magic button to put your finger on. (laughs) And I think the only way that you can work that out is by how many heads do you have in that area? What's your population in the area that is going to give you a general understanding of what the supply, the demand is going to be and whether there's going to be oversupply. Brisbane City Centre is a perfect example. Or Melbourne, where you have an oversupply of units, and as a result, Well, at the moment, I think there's an oversupply of probably of office, but that's as a result of COVID-19. Be educated with regards where you're looking, what you're buying, and what you're looking at. And I always say, turn every single stone. Wherever you're buying, turn every single stone. Look at all of those statistics. Have a look at what's happening in the area. Is there growth? Is there oversupply? Are they releasing too much green lands? Are they releasing too much space? And what are they releasing that space for? What is being developed there? Is the population actually going to support the development that they're putting in there? So is it growing at the same rate?
1: Yeah, that's right. And what I'm actually really looking forward to next year is the release of the most recent census data. That'll be really interesting to get the new population reports and all the other the data that they can actually provide. So that'll be, that'll be uh, really exciting.
0: Oh, Andrew, that's going to blow your socks off. You're going to be busy with that for months. I can just see <laughs> analyzing all the data. <laughs> that's fantastic, mate. Rather you than me.
1: <laughs> all right. So let's bring it back to commercial 101. The rate per square meter. Can you just give us a rough explanation of what a rate per square meter is?
0: Okay. So you've got two rates of per square meter. You've got your rental rate per square meter, which is basically the cost of your, your rental income versus your square meterage space. Okay, so if you've got 100 square meters and the tenant is paying, I'm being ridiculous here, $1,000, then you've got a one-to-one ratio, okay, $100 per square meter. So is that average? Is that what everybody else is paying in the area? And is that a very market-relative rate per square meter. And the same goes for when you're buying a property. If most of the properties are being sold at, let's say, $3,000 per square meter, are you buying your property at $3,000 per square meter? Now, that's not going to be cast in stone. You're going to have instances where your property might be a better quality of property. So, in other words, it's got a better fit out, it's got a better tenant, it's got a longer lease on it, and you'd be paying a little premium for that. So, you might pay a little bit more for that as a premium. The same goes for your rental. So, if your lease is longer, you've got a better tenant, they're stable, they've been there for a long time, they've maybe a, a five plus five for argument's sake, you might pay a little bit of a premium for that. And your tenant would be paying a premium for that. I'm going to throw a flag of caution in here as well. And this is where I see a lot of people coming unstuck, is the tenant's paying a high rent. They've been there for a long time. They've had their incremental increases. They're a stable tenant. They're saying, yes, 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 we want to stay on. And you look at the average rentals per square meter in the area, and you realize that they are, let's say, 30% lower one needs to quantify why your tenant is paying that much more. And we see this happening in banks, financial institutions. And that might be valid for, let's take a bank, for, for instance, because a bank's going to stay in the same place forever, for a long time. And the reason for that is because they've got a very expensive fit out and they've put a vault in there. They never intend moving. So it's not like a bank can pick up and go move three shops down the road. When they do a fit out, they generally do a fit out for a long-term fit out. And yep. they prepare to pay a premium for that. But it's up to you as the buyer to identify how long they're going to be there and how much value you're still going to get out of it.
1: Yeah, that's right. So okay. bringing it back to actually calculating the rate per square meter, how do we do that?
0: Okay. Your cost per square meter would be the value of the property that you're buying. So in other words, if you're buying it for $700,000 and it's 200 square meters, you would divide your 700,000 by your 200 square meters, which would give you your cost per square meter.
1: Yeah. And then you do exactly the same with the rental as well.
0: Identical. Yeah. Exactly the same with your rentals. Yeah. So that's just your, your quick little calculation. And how
1: do you like to blend in, like say with industrial, you have a net lettable area, the inside Mm. part, and then how do you like to blend in the the outside area, the hard stand?
0: Andrew, we usually look at that as one property in total. We would amortize those areas. So the way that I would look at that is I would amortize that area and look at the value of the overall property versus separating it from warehouse and hard stand. If it's additional hard stand, so we have some cases, for instance, where we have additional hard stand that we've rented for the value of our tenants. So I'll give you an example. We have an industrial warehouse that's on about a 1,000 square meters, and they wanted to do a drive through. There was some open land on the one side of the building. As the owners, we went and we put a lease on that land put a hard stand on there and then we charge the tenants we included it in their rental and we charge them for their property so that would be very different so they would pay on our books we can see that they're paying a thousand dollars per square meter for the hard stand versus three thousand dollars for the building and hard stand
1: and what about when you've got say a warehouse where it has a warehouse component and then mm-hmm. say it has no hard stand, just for instance, for this example. It's just got a warehouse component and you also have an office component. Do you do a blended rate for the different rates per square meter? Because they can be hugely different.
0: We just do one flat rate. Yeah. So again, we would look at the whole thing as as one building, give it one flat rate, and everything balances out at the end of the day. So it's not like we're going to charge the tenant. per square meter on the warehouse and $150 or $300 on the fit out or on the office because it's a better fit out. We just give them one flat rate. We amortize it right across the board. Yeah. So it's, uh, I look at it as uh, it's not worth splitting hairs. If you're comparing apples with apples, let's say industrial warehouses that have got the same type of fit out again and compare your cost per square meter with those versus their rental, same sort of thing.
1: Okay, and what we might do here, Mish, is this has Mm. become quite a large podcast. I think we're gonna have to split this up into part one and part two. So we'll end it here.
0: Thank you for joining us on the Revolve Commercial Property Podcast. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group, Cashflow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial where we share weekly updates on positive cash flow commercial properties currently on the market and how to acquire them. So go to Flow on Autopilot with Revolve Commercial or www.revolvecommercial.com.au.